This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Indelible in the hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too movement is a collection of essays, fiction, and poetry. Whether reflecting on their teenage selves or their modern-day workplaces, each writer approaches the subject with authenticity and strength. Together, the pieces create a portrait of a cultural sea change. Utah Poet Laureate Paisley Rectal is one of the contributing writers featured in the book. She's headlining an event tonight in Salt Lake City. That's at the King's English Bookshop, and it's titled Indelible in the Hippocampus. Paisley Rectal will be in conversation there with uh, poet and Sugar House Review editor Catherine Indermar. Um, we're going to talk this hour with Paisley Rectal about the present and future of the Me Too movement, We'll talk about change, justice, and cancel culture, and we'll talk about the role of art and literature in the movement. Well, let me jump in with, um, uh, from the introduction, Shelley Oria, who edited this, uh, this volume. Uh, she talks about, she says, 2017, when Me Too first hit in a big way, um, she says, looking back, she, uh, she was talking about putting this collection together. And she urged the uh, the publisher, let's get this done because this Me Too will only last a new cycle or two. And she, she says she looks back and laughs at that, but she still fears that um, you know, the, the goals will not be accomplished. That even though this has lasted uh, you know, a couple of years or so, and it seems like it's been a sea change, that uh, she still has those fears. I wonder if you share that. I do. I do share those fears. I want to also say, as she notes also in the introduction, that Me Too has actually been around since 2006 as a hashtag, um, uh, which was started by Tarana Burke, but it didn't get picked up until, obviously, um, news stories coming out of Hollywood and very high-profile cases around high-profile women started appearing in the news. But this story has been going on forever. Myself, um, I, I wrote a piece called Nightingale of Gloss, which appears in the anthology, and I talk about basically how sexual violence is hard-baked into so many of our literary texts, our cultural texts. This is uh, a conversation we've been having pretty much since humanity began. Um, and, and so in some ways, you know, she's right and wrong, and I'm right and wrong to worry that this story will end. Um, I think our attention to it, of course, can end. My biggest uh, worry about it is, to a certain extent, about the ways in which it becomes a very convenient media hashtag or very convenient media story that allows people to express themselves, to say these terrible things that have happened to themselves or report about terrible things that have happened to other people, and then people reading them feel like, well, having read these, this story and felt my feelings, I'm done. I have no, I have no more need to do any, to commit myself to any kind of change because witnessing is enough. But the fact is, witnessing is not enough. And I think um, there's a kind of irony about uh, books and, and media stories about these things um, being taken up because, of course, it gives more attention. It, it promotes um, a, lo- a wider audience. But at the same time, I think it can also numb us and make us feel as if we've accomplished enough simply by being part of the audience for this story. So what is the role of uh, art and literature 
than in, in, in the movement? That's a great question, and I go back and forth on this all the time. I'm not even sure myself. At the, say, at the essay that I wrote thinks very much about the story of Philomela in Ovid's The Metamorphoses, and Philomela is this young woman who is raped um, by her brother-in-law, and her tongue is cut out so that she can't tell anyone. But, of course, she figures out very quickly that she can weave in a tapestry the story of her assault and, um, and, and get revenge uh, through art in that sense. And to a certain extent, this, this figure of Philomela has been picked up over and over and over again in literature because Philomela turns into the nightingale, which is the symbol of lyric poetry itself. And so the idea is, I think, in that symbol that In fact, art has the ability to both transform suffering and pain, but also to communicate suffering and pain to other people. I think a lot of us want to believe that, both that art heals and also art um, transmits these stories so that that we become wider, more and more aware of it. But also, art is a form of entertainment. And I think it's a very fine line between what is uh, a kind of entertainment uh, and what is a voyeuristic spectrum spectacle and what is something that becomes a catalyst for change. So your question is such a good one, and to be honest, I can't answer it because I'm always worried about that myself as a writer. When I write about uh, violent or traumatic events, uh, whether they happen to me or to someone else, am I um, indulging someone's voyeurism or am I actually encouraging people to go out and change the situation? Yeah, you talk about this a lot in in this piece, don't you? Um, and it, you know a lot of different facets to this. Uh, and it, you, you state that sexual violence has been historically difficult to articulate. Yes, I mean I think if you think about the ways in which um, the language around sexual harassment and violence has evolved over, I mean just very quickly, even in this last century, but definitely over. Centuries. I, in my essay, I, I talk about um, in Middle English. There's, um, you know, Chaucer was writing about this in a, a long poem called *The Legends of Good Women*, where he tries to actually articulate the different types of sexual assault uh, and rape, essentially, that a woman can experience. And I think, um, you know, what happened to me as I was assaulted in Scotland, and what happened to me is something that, for me, felt like it. It didn't didn't fully fall under what I had been taught as a child was rape. And it wasn't until I looked at um, legal definitions of rape that I realized that, in fact, that, that does fall under the, that definition. And, and that really, really struck me because I think when we talk about sexual assault, we talk about sexual violence, we think we understand what we're talking about. But there are so many different ways, different shades, different types of violences people experience, and people experience them different, differently. And yet we only have one kind of language which with to express this, um, this, this event, these events and these very traumatic events in our lives. You talk in, this, uh, in, your, in your piece about how the role of language, that, that language can order events. You, you try to make sense of events, but some events resist that in a big way, including sexual violence. I think it's really true, and I think anyone who's experienced a sort of cataclysmic personal event or something that um, it, it, you know, goes outside of what we normally experience in our day-to-day life will experience very much this sense that language has a lack built into it, that we think 
Uh, language can articulate almost every kind of emotion, but sometimes our greatest joys and our greatest pains elude our ability to describe them. And I think that's why people go to narrative and go to poetry so often, is we're always looking for a word, a phrase, a way, an image to describe what it is that's happened to us. Um, and, and that's why we become compulsive storytellers, whether something good or bad has happened to us. Um, to, to a certain extent, as a writer, I mean, I find it both um, frustrating but also kind of relieving to know that there are some things that might stand outside of language. Um, it, it keeps me wanting to write, but it also shows me the great mystery of writing when it does, get, when it does express something well. You write that uh, perhaps the greatest desire of a victim of violence has uh, is to look in memory at that violence dispassionately. And you go on to say that it's, it's, it just doesn't happen that way. It doesn't. I mean, I think this, I, I think one of the um, other paradoxes of using narrative to sort of heal, whether it's PTSD or um, one's past um, struggles in any kind of way, is that um, we think if, as soon as you put it into language, you're able to um, control the narrative and control your responses to it and control your memories of it. And I think that is somewhat true. But there are times when um, I'll be reading, and this is why I don't read this piece actually very often, if at all, um, there'll be times when I'm reading that piece and suddenly I'll be overcome again with a kind of wave of remembrance. And it shuts me down and it freaks me out a little bit. And so... Um, you know, there I was. I've, I spent a lot of time polishing and working on and trying to get that language just right. And by doing so, remove myself from that that sense and those memories. But that that, that never really fully happens. Language only can um, attain so much in that sense. You you write. To, uh, this was fascinating to me. Um, was this this is Shakespeare's Rape of Lucretia and mm-hmm. Keats? Keats. Um, yeah, Keats, um, he he crossed out some lines. Uh, I'm not not sure what he was trying to do in his personal copy. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that as well. So it was actually um, Keats, John Keats, the um, famous Romantic English poet from the 19th century. He um, had a copy of Titus Andronicus, uh, which is a rewriting of the Philomela myth. And Titus Andronicus was written by Shakespeare. And and in Shakespeare's version, this is a young woman who is raped and taunted um, by, her, by, by some men. Um, and in, in John Keats's personal copy of Titus Andronicus, he viciously um, scratches out the lines in which these men basically are, are tormenting her verbally. Um, and I, there's, there's no clear reason why he did it, but um, I speculate that, in fact, he is horrified by... Um, these men's reactions, and he wants to disfigure their language much in the same ways that they actually disfigure her, because in Titus Andronicus, these men not only rape Lavinia, they also cut off her hands so that she doesn't have any ability to write, uh, and they cut out her tongue so she cannot speak. And so that kind of mutilation of the text that Keats enacts upon his own copy, I see as sort of a, a kind of writerly revenge on, on these men. There's it, it seems to be you know parallels uh, universal themes here right um, that uh, you know that certain segments of society doesn't want to hear it 
yeah, doesn't want for women I, to be I, able I to tell it? I wouldn't say it's universal, but I would say it's repetitive, which is to say I don't think that there's anything that um, forces us or requires us to be the way we are around uh, women and sexual violence, and there's nothing that requires that we forget these kinds of stories. And in fact, we, in, in a way we don't because we keep repeating them. I mean, Ovid's telling of um, the lamella has been told over and over and over again over the centuries by so many different poets and playwrights, and you even see it in movies occasionally. Um, and I think, I think there's no reason for us to forget it. I think partly we forget it because we encourage ourselves to forget it. But we don't have to be that way, right? We, we, we don't have to stop paying attention. And I think that's what Shelley Oria's anthology is trying to remind us of, that... Um, this is such a common occurrence. So many, you know, women across um, ages, across racial and ethnic, you know, categories, across um, sexual orientation groups experiences, but so many men do as well. Um, I've written a long poem, which I'll be reading on uh, at the event, about a man that I lived with who had been raped as a child. And... Um, you know, it, I think if there's only one thing missing in this anthology, it's the voices of men who have also been um, hurt or silenced um, in, in, uh, with sexual violence. So, uh, you know, the long history, I mean, it, it appears in Ovid, but I'm sure it appears before before Ovid, um, down to today. So it's not just Me Too, not just 2017, right? Um, okay. Where do you think we are? Well, I don't know <laughs> where we are. I mean, you're right. This has been going on basically forever. I mean, there's no major poem, no major war epic that does not involve basically the, the bartering and selling and the raping of women. Um, all, and, of course, you can trace through poetry and literature all the way up to today and, and through news stories. I think I am hopeful today because there are so many um, stories and younger people who I think are less silent. Um, they, they recognize what's happening, and through social media I think they feel more emboldened both to share their stories and to have their stories widely known. And because of that, they're able to, to see and to share with other people um, that there is a different way that we can think about um, you know, relationships between the sexes, between people that doesn't involve... Um, you know, certain kinds of behaviors that I grew up thinking were normal. I, you know, I was taught to always be polite and to be nice and not to, not to, to, to rock the boat. And I think to a certain extent those lessons are what made me very vulnerable that day when I was attacked because I didn't want to hurt that man's feelings. I didn't want to be rude. And before I knew it, that man had attacked me. But if I had been rude, if I'd stuck up for myself earlier, that might not have happened. And I think I'm very hopeful to, to see younger people today being able to recognize some certain behaviors as, as wrong and that they should be able to protect themselves. So I, I think we will change, um, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful about that. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Utah poet laureate Paisley Rectal. Uh, she is also professor of English at University of Utah. You can find out a lot more about her at paisleyrectal.com. And uh, she has a piece included in an anthology. It's called Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement. Uh, she's headlining an event at the King's English Bookshop tonight at 7 o'clock. 
That event is titled Indelible in the Hippocampus. We'll have more with Paisley Rectal following this break. Nobody gets to speak without race being a factor. On the next Radio Lab. U.S. federal government through an act of Congress will substantially reform domestic trans- This is academic debate. The white world of college debate is upended <laughs> yeah. by a team of black debaters. Sometimes you need to duck walk on them. Dead set on changing the rules. It made people stop. He said, you should go down the hall because that's where poetry prose is held. Join us for the next Radio Lab. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, it's music for yoga, hypnotic and mesmerizing music for seeking spiritual enlightenment, improving health, and shedding the stress of the modern world. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Yoga Around the World on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Utah poet laureate Paisley Rectal. She has a piece included in an anthology called Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement. We're talking about the Me Too Movement and related topics on the program today. Paisley Rectal is headlining an event at the King's English Bookshop tonight at 7 o'clock. That's free and open to the public in Salt Lake City. And you can find out more about Paisley Rectal at paisleyrectal.com. This episode is part of our Stopping Sexual Harassment series made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle. One of the writers, and I, I'm, I'm sorry for, for her sake, I didn't, <laughs> I can't remember which one, but uh, she said she she's talked to pretty much every you know woman she's met, and and they all, I think, hundred percent, have said agreed with her that with her experience that they've all said yes at least at one point because they didn't know what saying no would 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 mean where that would lead. Yeah, I can't think of which writer that is as well in the anthology, but I remember reading that passage as well, and I think that's very true. Um, I, and maybe I'm wrong then when I say I'm hopeful that younger people, because I think that, that that writer was a much younger writer than I am. I, I, think, I think the pressure to say yes um, on young people and, and, just, and women in general, that's just been so ingrained in us. And I think if we can learn to say no <laughs> more forcefully and, and remind ourselves all the time that, that, this, that, that you can always say no, um, that would be a good lesson. But it is true. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I remember having a conversation when I was much younger with my female friends, and it was way before a, a conscious Me Too movement, but all of us had described being either harassed or stalked or molested or, you know, in certain cases, raped. And to a certain extent, we all thought and said to each other, is this what it means to be a woman? And I have to say, I would hate to think that the definition of being a woman is to be a victim. I don't see myself that way, and I don't think any woman wants to see herself that way or does see herself that way. Um, And so... Anything that can <laughs> happen, I think, societally that allows us to 
feel like we can control um, the narrative of ourselves, our bodies, to return agency to us in a large way, I think is good. Uh, a couple of quotes here um, from the book. The act, the activism of telling our stories started this movement and remains at its core. And then juxtapose that with um, one of the pieces in the book, uh, the, the author says, my story is my own. You, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's, I get to decide when I tell it, uh, what it means, uh, because sometimes, you know, stories are co-opted. As you said earlier in the conversation, um, you know, people hear a story and then they'll, then they'll, I guess, feel permission to just to move on. Yeah, I think there is that unresolvable paradox about this anthology and, and the Me Too stories in general, and it, it is exactly what you just articulated, which is um, telling a story is one thing, but there's no way you really truly can control that narrative once it's been created and once it's been disseminated and published. And um, to a certain extent, I mean, I'm sympathetic to both positions. You know, my story is mine. I certainly feel terrible if someone was to co-opt it. At the same time, that's the risk, um, and I'm willing to take that risk in order for a larger conversation to take place. Um, I will also say that, I mean, as much as these narratives are important to share and to hear and to be a part of, they don't mean anything unless actual legislation, actual social activism that, that creates practical solutions, um, you know, gets enacted as well. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a hard thing that <laughs> to to just rely on storytelling and, um, and witnessing if, if there's nothing else to, in the courts or in the workplace or in schools, to rely on to actually protect anyone. Um, one of the quotes that stood out to me from the book was, this is not a gender war. You made reference to the fact that the, you know, some men are, are raped, some men experience uh, sexual violence. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, there's, in, in some circles, there's pushback from, uh, from men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it isn't a gender war. And like I said before, I do think that the one failing of the book is that they don't have any, you know, other, they, they might have one or two uh, male vo- more male voices is what I would say. Because they, um, there are a, lo- a lot of men who have, I think, felt... Um, that there is no room in the in the Me Too movement, or even earlier in the sexual violence harassment movement in general, because so much of the therapeutic language around sexual violence and trauma and rape has been geared, um, practically speaking, around women's experiences, and so men wanting to, you know go and, and talk about these experiences might feel like they're put in a situation where they either have to imagine themselves um, as, as women or feminized in some sort of way, which maybe they don't feel comfortable doing for good reasons, um, or they feel as if their, you know, their experience has to be shunted to the side. And, of course, that's painful, too. So I am actually, you know, having you know, watched what happened to my ex-boyfriend and, and having watched how his rape had basically affected almost all aspects of his life in ways that he didn't even know how to articulate, I'm very sympathetic to um, having a more inclusive conversation and movement around this because I think unless if, if we only portray one gender as 
a victim and another gender as a perpetrator, I think we miss something more complex about the ways in which all of us have the possibility of both being uh, wounded and and wounder, um, and somebody who can both heal and somebody who has can hurt. I think violence and that kind of capability is within us all. And unless we can acknowledge that, I don't think we do get to move forward overall. I want to read this. This is just a passage from, uh, this is uh, an essay called A Good Man is Hard to Find. Um, increasingly, the writer says, I find myself sitting across from good men who, while they're concerned about the safety of women and the predation of men, are equally, if not more, mortally afraid for themselves. It seems even the good men can feel the invisible throne of patriarchy slipping, can sense that uh, when it goes, it will take something even from them, despite their goodness. The writer goes on to talk about how, you know, some are worried about the cancel culture and uh, fearing that maybe it's you know where is justice you know and what what is justice and 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 what's enough i think those are great questions and i love that passage too and i think the questions that she raises there are so um you know relevant to everybody i also worry about cancel culture i think a lot of people do i i worry about it because one of the things that's important about a court and a legal system is that there is a, a form of due process, and that that is there to protect everybody, ideally. And I think um, the problems with using social media and cancel culture and using stories primarily as a way of uh, moving the Me Too movement forward is there's, there doesn't have to be evidence, and there doesn't have to be um, anything more than shame essentially heaped on um, a, an alleged perpetrator. And while this can be very initially satisfying, I don't think it's something that anyone can rely on because, you know, we, we should all want to, to look for truth. We should all be on the side of fact. We should all be on the side of evidence. We should all be on the side of due process and, and, and be able to trust and, and work for a justice system that can truly work for everybody. And the thing about the Internet is, of course, there's no off button to it. And if, if we use a kind of mob uh, justice or you know, cancel culture to be the primary way in which um, Me Too or any kind of social justice movement uh, moves forward, I think we put everybody at risk. It makes people um, rightfully nervous about claims that are made and cannot be substantiated. Um, and it hurts the women that come forward and don't have... Um, you know, so, and they, it can hurt women that come forward um, later on if other people are, are, are seen as, um, as untrustworthy. So while overall um, I'm not sympathetic to men who or anyone who would say, well, we, we can't trust the Me Too movement entirely because it's just it's a war against men and I'm going to lose something for that, I do think we should approach um, a movement or any, any kind of movement that relies solely, which I don't think the Me Too movement does, solely on cancel culture as, as a problem. This is something that has to work in the courts, and I think that's why the Harvey Weinstein case is so important, because it is going through the courts. So uh, problems with cancel culture, of course, you know, uh, we all get behind uh, the, the cases should be uh, taken through the court system, that, that'd be the best, but what, uh, what else will propel the movement, do you think? What else will give success? Wow, I don't know. <laughs> That's a really big question. I think one of the things that I've, I've found 
um, smart and, and interesting about some of the, the work that Me Too um, movement organizers have done is that they've started to think about how um, this is an intersectional problem in general and thinking about how this particularly uh, can, can affect and hurt uh, women of color who are also not necessarily um, uh, economically uh, mobile in the same way. So working class women of color, um, you know, thinking about giving, offering them legal advice and help. Like I think there's a lot of uh, work with um, women in sort of like, like the food industry and things like that. I think this is, you know, movements like that are, you know, going into those sorts of directions is smart because I think it, it offers and thinks about some practical solutions and it thinks about um, who has more or less access to um, legal help and, um, and also social, social justice in general. I want to talk about the title of the, uh, of the book. This, is, um, this comes from the Kavanaugh hearings, right? Uh, Indelible in the Hippocampus. And it gets into several issues. So Dr. Blasey Ford, uh, you know, they said, well, how do you, you know, how do you remember? You know, how do you know? It was, it was uh, now Justice Kavanaugh. And she says uh, laughter is indelible in the hippocampus. She remembers the laughter. Yeah. I think that was a moment that a lot of people paid attention to. It was certainly one that I paid attention to. I actually had done some work on trauma theory before and some studies on trauma, largely because I had been working on a book called The Broken Country, which is about transgenerational trauma. And, and it, I did read about how it can basically hardwire our brains, um, a traumatic event, and that it enters into our bodies in that way. But when she said that, uh, that was the laughter, that was the thing that she could not forget, I think all of us um, kind of sat up and took notice about that because I think that that really speaks volumes. Um, that is exactly, <laughs> uh, it's, it's always a detail. There's a piercing kind of detail from these moments that becomes the unerasable thing. And when you, when you go back to that image or that sound or that one sensation, it can all come flooding back. It, for me, it was the most believable moment of her testimony. I found her incredibly credible throughout her entire testimony as well. And the other is, is it now sort of stands as a symbol. It's, you know, she's not the only one. Obviously, uh, either not believed, or or the you know the 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 senators couldn't afford to believe her, or what, whatever it was. Um, one of the uh, writers uh, in the anthology uh, I thought made a, an excellent point, talking to to someone about this. Why why aren't uh, women believed, or why can't you remember it, or why didn't you come forward sooner? Uh, she said, "Well, try to imagine." carefully, cleverly planting a lie 30 years ago, right? And then carefully nurturing that just on the off chance that 30 years later you'll, you'll have an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the question about why people don't come forward earlier, I mean, that was something, when I read my piece, Nightingale of Gloss, I mean, this happened to me when I was 21 years old. I'd just turned 21, practically. And, um, and I'd never written about it, never talked about it, and so here I am in my 40s, and I read this, and someone right after my reading asked, well, why didn't you come, what did you, didn't you go to the police? Why didn't you do this? And, you know, I never even thought for a moment at that time what, what happened to me. Would I, A, should I go to the police if I was in a foreign country? No, that didn't seem like a good idea. And then B, why would I tell anyone? Well, 
you know, I, I had a lot of friends and family who already thought it was strange that I was traveling alone all the time by myself and wasn't it dangerous and I didn't want anyone to, I, I had no intention of stopping traveling alone. So, you know, I just knew it was going to make other people upset. It wasn't going to heal anything for me and it wasn't going to solve anything. I was never going to get any justice for this. And I think that's the way a lot of people feel when something like this happens to them, which is that what, is, what do you get from coming forward? And and at the same time, like, what do you get from lying about it? You don't get anything. Um, and, you know, for me, with the Kavanaugh hearings, I, I personally think that all the senators did believe um, Dr. Blasey Ford. But what was worse is they just didn't care. Um, they, they saw that, and it goes back to something you were reading from the anthology earlier, which is that they didn't want to give up another kind of power. They wanted their justice on the Supreme Court, and they were willing to do whatever it took to get that voice on the Supreme Court, and they didn't care what package that voice came in. And that, to me, is the truly awful and cruel thing about it, which is you can believe um, this testimony, and at the same time you refuse to give up any other kind of power that would actually dismantle the kind of patriarchal system that, that, that affects millions and millions of women on an everyday basis. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and our guest for the hour is Utah poet laureate Paisley Rectal. She's included in an anthology called Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement. Indelible in the Hippocampus is the title of an event this evening at 7 o'clock in Salt Lake City at the King's English Bookshop. Paisley Rectal is headlining that event. That's free and open to the public. We'll have more with Paisley Rectal following this break. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. If you've ever had a child, you'll know that parenting advice can get pretty emotional. Well, actually, if you do that, there's a very good chance your baby will die, and only someone who hates their baby would do that. Wouldn't it be nice to bring some data into these conversations? I really started digging into, like, okay, well, actually, what should we do here? The Data-Driven Guide to Sane Parenting. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Coming up this morning at 10 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including music concerts, live theater, classes, workshops, art shows, lectures, festivals, volunteer opportunities, and much, much more. Just check out upr.org and head to our community calendar page. There you'll find our user-friendly submission link and the submission guidelines. Utah Public Radio would like to thank KSM Music, Hampton Inn & Suites of Logan, Cox Honeyland, Firehouse Pizzeria, Gem City Fine Foods, The Vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms, Off-Premise Catering, and The Cash Venue for their support of UPR. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for our original programs like Year of the Woman or Project Resilience, email me at debbie.andrew at usu.edu. This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement is a collection of essays, fiction, and poetry 
Whether reflecting on their teenage selves or their modern uh, day workplaces, each writer approaches the subject with authenticity and strength, and together the pieces create a portrait of a cultural sea change. Utah poet laureate Paisley Rectal is one of the contributing writers featured in the book. And Indelible in the Hippocampus is the title of an event uh, that's happening this evening at 7 o'clock at the King's English Bookshop. Paisley Rectal will be headlining that event. And uh, as I mentioned, that's tonight, 7 o'clock, Salt Lake City, King's English Bookshop. Paisley Rectal is also professor of English at University of Utah. You can find out more about her at her website, paisleyrectal.com. This episode of the program is a part of our Stopping Sexual Harassment series, made possible support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle. It can get, um, I mean, it's pretty obvious, it can get pretty depressing, right? I was, yesterday yeah. I was hearing a report from India where, you know, yeah. famous uh, famous gang rape on, on a bus and then India t- took some steps and felt like they were making progress. And now now some recent cases have, have uh, caused, uh, you know, the whole nation to wonder if they're even making progress. I listened to that story as well. And one of the things that I found so fascinating about it was, you know, they were talking about also how... So much of this stems from a lack of um, sexual education. And so they spend a lot of time now going around and trying to talk about, A, the realities of sex, and, and with that, then B, like the realities of what, you know, male and female or cross-gender relationships can look like in a healthy way. And this is not to say that a good sex education program will suddenly erase sexual violence, but, I mean, there are a lot of people, I think, who don't know a lot about how to um, protect their their own bodies and to approach other people about their bodies as well. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, a a culture that allows for or experiences a lot of sexual violence also is one that is very repressive around um, its uh, sexual health um, education. And I think that's something that we might consider as well, which is how is it that our sex education programs don't just tell us something about biology, they tell us something about um, the ways in which uh, young men and women can interact with each other and how they might see their own sexual agency in the world. I want to read another little passage from this uh, this essay called A Good Man is Hard to Find. Uh, the writer says, Sometimes I want to ask the good men in my life to imagine walking outside and having their everyday begin with a threat from the kind of man who wants you to know where he know that, that he knows where you live, to go to work and receive creepy advances on top of being allowed to take home only 79 cents of your dollar if you're white, 63 if you're black, to imagine trying to keep track of and to anticipate all the consequences of the word no. I wonder if that's a, uh, it's got to be, I guess, part of the solution is helping men to understand the experiences that women go through. Yeah, and I don't think it takes a lot. to. I really don't think it would take a lot to help men understand that, because I think one of the things that we all do understand is the fear of being vulnerable. And I think we have trained and acculturated certain people in our, our population to feel like they're, whatever happens, they can never admit to being vulnerable. But all of us know what it's like to be vulnerable. And I think um, if, you know, to, 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 I think a lot of young men also experience that through, you know, bullying or peer pressure or something like that to remind people that, in fact, um, if, you can, if you can empathize with and imagine the experience of uh, being at someone else's mercy, then you have to protect and 
respect the boundaries of all those around you. And I do believe that's something everyone can learn because I think it is something that all of us have experienced, um, you know, at some point in time. All of us have been or felt at someone else's mercy. I, I can't find my note on this one, but I think this was from your, your piece. Um, I believe it was you who said um, that, uh, you know, you talk about in literature there, there's sexual violence and then there's retribution. And the fact, in, in in at least speaking for yourself, that's separate. That's that's not really going to help you. Yeah, one of the things that it is in my essay. So one of the things that always disturbed me about the myth of Philomela, which I was thinking about and rewriting in my essay, was that um, after Philomela tells her story um, by weaving it into the tapestry, and she gives it to her sister. Her sister who is uh, a bacante or a minad, basically a, a, a woman who kind of goes into states of violent ecstasy, um, she leads her into this violent retributive act where they hack up and um, feed the child um, of, of Tyrius to him. And, of course, he's, you know, he goes in a violent rage as well. So the, the result of telling this story of uh, Philomela's sexual um, violation is actually just this endless cycle of violence. And I don't think that's what anyone wants either. Um, It's certainly not what anyone in the Me Too movement wants. And I think um, it's certainly not what anyone should aspire to, which is uh, retribution is possibly not the question. It's not the answer. Um, The question is sort of like, how can we restore um, and and maintain respect um, and honor for, for everyone? And, you know, how can we, you know, instead of a retributive justice that is nothing but violent, how is it that, that people can make amends or how can we um, think about a kind of justice that doesn't require the diminishment, and the humiliation, and the objection of somebody else? Because that's what led to the rape in the beginning, you know, the, the idea that someone is inhuman. So long as we think of each other as inhuman, there is no hope. Um, because it just allows us to do anything we want to to somebody else. And I think that's why I am, in a weird way, hopeful that um, the Me Too movement or thinking about and talking about sexual violence in a very open way that includes as many people as possible will be helpful because what we want to do is, is restore humanity to people because once you see someone as a human, you have to treat them with the same respect you would yourself. It seems like this is uh, is happening maybe more and more in just politics in general, dehumanizing the the opposition. Uh, yeah, it seems and like we're going I'm, in the wrong direction. Yeah, I, I and I think this is where where I'm not so crazy about social media and again that idea of cancel culture because cancel culture is um, maybe a, a a different form of it, but it's still a form of dehumanizing someone else. I don't have to speak to you anymore. I don't have to pay attention to you anymore. I don't have to uh, witness or you know, see you as somebody that I have to deal with because, to me, you are gone. You are canceled. But you can't just cancel people. I mean, we are all, it, in order for change to actually happen, you have to listen to and, and talk to people you disagree with, too. Um. So, so uh, you, you've you've laid out some some things that perhaps we can do. You know, not retribution, but uh, you know, s- s- increasingly humanize the, the the people we d- we deal with. Um, 
how how can that best be done? Do you think? Oh my gosh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I I know that there are um, people who've been working um, in the prison system um, to to talk about a kind of restorative justice where um, you know offenders meet with the people that they have harmed and through a, a lengthy mediation process and conversation, they figure out what would what what could the offender do to uh, make amends with the people that, you know, he or she has harmed. And then it's really tough and, and really kind of scary work for everybody involved. But it seems to be doing, you know, pretty well, actually. Um, that, that sounds good to me. I think um, being able to have more open conversations in sexual education classes, um, making sure that those are offered at all schools and at all levels, I think would be incredibly important and helpful, especially around the ideas of sexual violence, um, and not just letting this be something that the media takes care of or, you know, friends or, you know, people we meet on the street, um, something that educators are actively involved with. I want to pick up something you said earlier, and I think we've, on previous conversation, you and I have talked about this, uh, intergenerational trauma. Um, and how trauma can be passed passed on. Um, all the more reason to you know to, to make progress if we can now, right? To avoid passing. Yeah, this on. absolutely. I mean, the more we learn about trauma, the um, the scarier it is. But it also, I think, it, it contains within it a very important lesson. So, if trauma is actually genetically um, heritable, which it does seem to be, um, it also reminds us that. Obviously, like, we're all deeply connected to violent events of the past, but also to each other, because as you, you know, what, what affects someone somewhere else can come home um, and their behaviors change, and then the way they interact with their family and their friends has changed. And so, you know, we, we might think of, you know, global events as somehow um, isolated, that we have no relationship to them, but in fact we do. Um, you know, history is not something that is experienced in a book. It's something that's experienced in our bodies and transmitted that way. And, you know, if we think about that with whether it's war or sexual violence, I think you know, we have to, you know, remind ourselves that, um, again, we're, we're not just um, related to each other through narrative. We're related to each other based on our behavior. And it's not just, you know, empathy is not just a, a sort of, nice word, it might become actually crucial for being able to work with um, and, and heal various people. I want to just, we're nearing the end of our time, I just want to uh, read this from Carissa Chen from the, from the book, Delavan the Hippocampus. Um, she says, and now I will wait to see if telling this story, if putting it into words, made permanent by ink and paper, will help exercise the symptoms rushing through my body. I will wait to see if this is how we begin to heal our bodies, by airing out what we have forced them to reckon with silently, protectively, alone. I wonder what you think about about that. Well, I'm still waiting, too, and I've been waiting longer than she has. So <laughs> I, I'm always hopeful, but I, I also recognize that there are always limitations in writing. And um, writing can't heal everything, but it can do a lot. So what's, what's your advice, then, to... to women or, or men who have experienced sexual violence? Well, um, I, I think therapy is always a good thing. <laughs> and 
no one should be ashamed or um, kept out, ideally, from from being able to find a good counselor. And I think that that can be really crucial because the reality is we, we might want to tell our closest friends and, and maybe our relatives, and sometimes we'll be lucky and those people will be exactly who can help and heal us. But um, sometimes it's better to find somebody outside of that circle who has more knowledge and more professional training who can actually lead you in a direction because they they don't, they don't know you so well <laughs> that they're only going to do something that's potentially, um, you know, let's just put it this way, they'll be able to see a larger picture. Uh, just one more quote here. This comes from Shelley Oria's uh, story that ends the book. And, and the story essentially, uh, my reading of it is a revenge fantasy. Um, the, the, she has her character say, the story of a woman is the story of a nation. When we keep our stories so small that people can't see the world through them, we fail. I wonder what your thoughts on that are, and how do we, I guess, we band together to to, to, to tell a, a collective story. Yeah. I mean, it is a collective story. I don't myself like the idea of embodying any large abstract notion in any particularly gendered body, because oftentimes that works on stereotypes we have about the that body. Um I think the body, if there is a metaphor to be made about the nation, it is a multiply gendered, multiply um, identitied self. In that sense, it's more like um, a kind of Leviathan figure or something like that. Um, it's not. It's 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 not just one kind of body story to tell. And I think um, the more stories that we hear, the more likely we are to be able to connect with each other and to see each other as human. Well, at the end here, I want to step away from this discussion. Um, talk about your work, your ongoing work. You're, you're currently the Utah Poet Laureate, right? I am, and I'm really excited about the stuff that's coming up this April. Um, we've got a lot of things. Um, we have the Beehive Poetry Month um, that uh, the Utah Division of Arts and Museums, the Utah U- Humanities Council and I are basically funding some guerrilla poetry projects that are going to be taking place all around Utah uh, throughout the month of April. So that's really exciting. So t- um, tell me, what, what's, have, what's a guerrilla poetry project? <laughs> it means this sort of surprising pop-up <laughs> poetry events. Oh, okay. Some, some more planned than others, but there are going to be some surprising poetry-related activities and festivities that take place around Utah. Um, throughout the month of April, so we'll be publicizing that as the the month nears. Um, we also have a Utah Poetry Festival. This is the second annual one. It's going to be on the University of Utah campus on April 18th, and it's all day from 10 to 5. Um, if you register for it, you get a free lunch. There's um, pedagogy sessions for K-12 through teachers interested in learning how to uh, incorporate more poetry into their classrooms. We give you exercises and ways to teach poems and things like that. Um, and you get teaching certification, so we're really excited about that. And then also we're going to be launching, or I should say I'm going to be launching, the um, uh, Mapping Literary Utah website, 
which is the first ever web archive of Utah writers, past and present. There's poets, there's all sorts of fiction writers, um, there's playwrights, there's slam poets, there's cowboy poets, there's uh, Native American storytellers. We've got a lot of different people on this site. So we're um, in the process of uploading all of these different archival materials and videos, and that site should be launched uh, by the end of April. Oh, it sounds like a lot of great things. Uh, I believe you have a, a book out fairly recently? I do. Um, a book that just came out is called Nightingale, and that's um, a book of uh, poems that rewrites Ovid's The Metamorphoses or responds to it. And then I just um, was uh, the guest editor for the Best American Poetry 2020. So that's going to be forthcoming in the fall. And I just finished a book also about cultural appropriation <laughs> and what we mean and what we think we mean when we talk about cultural appropriation. And that's going to be coming out sometime next year as well. All right. A lot of good stuff. So it's paisleyrectal.com is the website? Yes. All right. Wonderful. Uh, Paisley Rectal, it's, it, uh, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is great. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Just a reminder that uh, Paisley Rectal is included in the anthology Indelible in the Hippocampus, writings from the Me Too movement. That's what we've been talking about uh, for the hour. And uh, Paisley Rectal will headline an event this evening, 7 o'clock, at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. It's called Indelible in the Hippocampus, and uh, that is free and open to the public. Uh, coming up on Monday on Access Utah, we hope you'll join us as we talk with the authors, uh, Utah-based authors, of a new book called Champions of Change, 25 Women Who Made History, stories of powerhouse women who pushed for justice in politics, medicine, art, mu- music, religion, tribal leadership, and more. That's coming up on Monday. Uh, thanks for listening today. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.